You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about passion and the important role that it plays in investor portfolios in the world of alternatives. And joining me today is Shana Sissel, founder and CEO at Banrian Capital Management. Shana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me again. Absolutely. Yeah, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> really enjoyed our first episode that we recorded together where we revealed to the audience that you are the queen of alternatives, uh, the unchallenged queen. So I, I, I don't want to introduce you without mentioning that. Um, but today, I think this is a really interesting take. This is it's maybe something that like a few guests have brought up in passing, but the role of passion in investing and in alternatives specifically, to me, it's it's definitely there, but it's very rarely discussed. Mm-hmm. And you know, why don't we just start with how do why why is passion important? You know, you work with a lot of financial advisors. Financial advisors are speaking with clients, educating clients. And for you, this is often a bridge where investors first get into alternatives. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody kind of remembers Peter Lynch, the famous Fidelity portfolio manager for the Magellan Fund back in the 80s and 90s, uh, always used to say, buy what you know, buy what you love. And he was thinking about it more in like the stock sense, but Mm -hmm. broadly speaking, the ability to invest and align that investment with what you're passionate about is much broader in the alternative space. And when we think about why we aren't seeing this huge move to alternatives in the advisor market, I I think there's a lot of reasons. But I think one of the ways that we can bridge that frustration or that hesitancy that clients have or advisors have is thinking about alternatives as an opportunity to help clients invest with impact, invest aligning with values or aligning with passion. And so, you know, the alt space is everything. It's it's literally everything you can imagine. It's wine, it's (laughs) antiques, it's baseball cards, it's sports rights funds, it's any and everything you can possibly imagine. I I love I'm already I'm already sold because I want to convince my wife to let me buy like a Ty Cobb T206 baseball card. So I, I already love it. I feel like you're already building the case <laughs> that I should be investing in baseball cards, Shana. And there are private funds that do that. Yeah. And that's that's the really interesting opportunity that sits within alternatives. I think alternatives at large have largely tried to be sold to advisors and their clients in the way that institutions use them. So thinking about like private equity, you know, mezzanine debt, distressed debt, hedge funds. And that's a little intimidating and also not necessarily something that connects with investors, especially individuals who might be uncomfortable with illiquidity or with lockups. Mm -hmm. So when you're introducing the concept of alternatives in this diversifying nature that they can bring to a portfolio, you know, what better way to do that but to start the conversation by a getting to know your client better by asking questions about things that they enjoy that they uh, want to get more involved in and then finding ways in which they can invest 
in those things. So, you know, like you said, baseball cards, that is an opportunity to potentially find ways for your clients who maybe they want to invest in baseball cards. Maybe they're just sports fans. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's organizations like Velocity, there's Kaz Investments that did a sports rights fund. There's a number of organizations that do sports rights and sports related alternative investment products. So that's one perfect example that I think will resonate with a lot of people. But the goal here, of course, is when advisors are going to reach the topic of alternatives, which can be scary in and of itself, because there's complexity, there's illiquidity, there's lockups, there's strange fee structures. The easiest way I think for everybody is to have something that they can connect with because mm -hmm. the conversation gets less focused on the scary things and it actually creates a level of excitement. Right. We, you don't want to start that uh, sales pitch with, well, yeah. let me tell you about the catch. Let me tell you all the bad things about this product. And it's not, they're not really bad things necessarily, but, but I totally, I get what you're saying. You want to lead with something that will evoke emotion. And a lot of investors, even putting aside the advisor thing, because you know, some of our listeners are self-directed, some of them have mm -hmm. advisors, but putting even putting that aside, I think all investors are emotionally driven. And you know, the very best investors that really know how to manage their emotions or even, you know, uh be fearful when others are greedy, be greedy. But but the bottom line is we're all human beings, and a lot mm -hmm. of those investment decisions really are emotionally driven. You know, even if you put guardrails around them and right. you say, I'm going to have a portfolio model and I'm going to have a, a diversified balanced portfolio, there still is going to be all sorts of subjectivity and elements of that portfolio that will tilt with a client's or an investor's particular interests or passions, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we can all say, you know, some investors are better when they're not emotional, but I guarantee you, um, you know, even the best institutional investors who aren't emotionally attached to the money that they're allocating, uh, when it comes to their personal investments, uh, it's a little bit different. You know, <laughs> um, they might be better at managing their emotions, but they're still more emotional about how they invest their individual assets versus their institutional assets. I think that's true with everyone. Even if you think of like the ultra, ultra high net worth, well, most of them have substantial cash or like yeah. yield. They don't have a lot of risk in those portfolios. And why is that? I mean, they can afford to take risk, right? They don't want to. Mm -hmm. They have this massive and they, they don't feel like they need to because they can they have a massive amount of assets that can generate yield. So why take risk? And And so, again, a perfect example of somebody who can take risk, but doesn't. Um, institutions are a different breed. They're, they're, that right. is not individual money. That's not money that's emotionally attached to very specific needs and very specific goals to meet certain cash flow needs and demands. But individuals tend to behave differently with their own investments. Even the best investors in the world are slightly different in the way that they invest their personal assets versus their professional assets. So, you know, again, it, it comes down to what gets you excited. You know, even if you think about, again, we'll talk about those ultra high net worth. Maybe they're angel investors. They're angel investors in passion projects. They're not just right. randomly investing, right? They're investing in people because they're passionate about whatever that person is working on. They're never going to invest in something they don't understand or they don't care about. So again, right. it all comes down to making that connection. And I think when it comes to introducing alternatives, 
and private funds in general to a client that has never invested, or if it's the first time an advisor is sort of proactively discussing it, you know, finding a way to make that connection on the emotional level. And, you know, we're talking about passion in terms of like ego, but passion can mean impact and value too, right? You know, making the world a better place, uh, doing things that people feel like they are making a difference in their community and helping people is also an impact and passion that you can take advantage in the alternatives markets. Totally. And, and I think that that, you know, the, the concept of impact, you know, we, we can talk about this later, but, you know, some people might immediately associate that with ESG, but I'm like, but it, you know, also in real estate, like we deal with private equity, real estate funds and those managers all the time. And a lot of people just love the idea of building things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're just naturally attracted to like ground up development. So even then that's a, that's a passion. It's making an impact in local communities. Right. I think one of the issues is even in the, the nomenclature or the, the very structure of the alternative investment universe, you know, when you have, there used to be the 60, 40, right. That the mm -hmm. sort of default model. And now you hear more about the 50, 30, 20 or whatever you want to call it. But within that 50, within this, the world of stocks, um, you know, and, and I don't have your job, so you can shoot this down, Shana. But for me, you know, VTI, it's probably going to work for almost everybody mm -hmm. with their fit, you know, whether you're in, sure international diversification, but whether you're the Harvard endowment or, you know, the little old grandma with the tiny little nest egg that, uh, you know, th there's only so many ways to skin that cat. And most people are going to be just fine with a big, broad, simple answer. But within alternative investments, like we give it one label but it's actually all these very disparate asset classes, disparate strategies. You know, hedge funds really have nothing to do with private credit necessarily. And private right. credit has nothing to do with farmland and farmland has nothing to do with baseball cars. So I almost think that the, it's it's underserved in a way to even lump all these things together and say they're all alternative investments, because even with ultra high net worth, you know, you mentioned family offices. They're more heavily allocated to alternatives, mm -hmm. but it's very rarely in this balanced way where they say, oh, we'll put a fifth in private credit and a fifth in private equity and a fifth in venture. It's usually heavily tilted to one or two areas within alternatives. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. To your point, in the traditional markets, uh, you know, I worked on the institutional side. I worked for Mercer Global Investments. I worked for Russell Investments. I worked for Fidelity Strategic Advisors. So I'm very used to that institutional mindset. Even in the institutional mindset, it's not unusual for those big managers to, you know, take passive bets in the areas where they feel like there's the least opportunity for excess return, large cap in particular. Um, that is not unusual. Even then, um, the large institutions may use an active manager, but because of their size, they can negotiate fees down to right. minuscule amounts, which the individual retail investor is unable to do. But the point here is that most of the time, the institutional investors aren't taking risk in those markets. They're getting broad-based exposure, like you said. And then they're looking at the alternative space. And again, to your point, it's a very disparate and uh, you know, fragmented group of investment types. It's basically just everything else. That everything is, else. Yeah. It's just everything the else that's not yeah. public. And, 
And a lot of people think of it as like, oh, alts is like its own, like, oh, I'm going to allocate 20% to alts. You can't think of it that way either because private equity is still equity and still equity beta. It's just a different way to capture equity beta. Private credit's credit. It's still fixed income. It's still yield. And then there's like those diversifying things, which the hedge funds tend to fall into. Mm-hmm. And also these other things we're talking about, like sports rights and baseball cards and antiques, violins. I remember I came across somebody who was investing in like very rare violins, Uh, music rights, all of those things. You pointed to real estate. You know, building is something people are passionate about. People kind of understand real estate because everybody either lives in uh, an apartment building or owns a home and so it's it's personal everybody is connected to it um and then there's the opportunity zone things things like low density housing rehab you know vintage housing uh improving the internal structure so that it's more energy efficient but you keep the character that makes the community the community or you improve um, you know, Section H or low-income housing. I mean, there's so many different ways you can skin this cat for, you know, using a kind of lame phrase. But um, <laughs> there's a million different ways you can invest in alts. And 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 that is kind of what makes it fun, but also what makes it intimidating, right? Because you can find anything. And then you got to make sure that it's reasonable and valid and operationally sound. And it gets a little complicated from that. But that's kind of what my firm seeks to solve for is, looking for those really interesting ways to have impact, whether it be on the ego level, as I like to say, or the value and impact level where it's, you know, more in that social making the world a better place. And I don't like the term ESG because I think it's been hijacked. Everyone and anyone talks about ESG and it's so subjective. Mm -hmm. You know, what one person considers ESG and what somebody else does is completely different. Um, it's very much a personal definition. So I like to think more of like social impact, impact investing, value-based investing, and let the investor define what that means to them because maybe some investors are okay with Well, totally, Shayna. I'm right with you. I I mean, here's my perspective on ESG is that you're right, that the values-based is going to be personal and subjective. But I would say on the institutional side, ESG does have a fairly defined somewhat solid you know somewhat but but i guess my point is i don't think individual investors are in, uh interested in that like they're I don't, interested I, in impact but, but the, right the but institutionalized I idea of esg not so much and i would argue that yeah. even on the institutional side there's a lot of debate on what esg is and most firms will pick e s or g because you can't really do all three sure effectively um you know and then you have the whole, is it an inclusive or exclusive um, kind of screening model where, you know, you're not excluding anybody, um, but you're including only th- people that meet certain things. And then you can have energy in there and have some art. Well, exactly. There's like a million different things. <laughs> exactly. That like, there's no good definition. So when you're dealing with individual investors, it's really whatever personally is important to them. Well, bingo. No, that that's a, that's exactly my point is even if all of these institutions, your point is they all might have different decisions or different policies. But as an individual, I just don't care. I don't care what Blackstone thinks right. about social issues. I just don't. I like literally could not care any less. Mm-hmm. But I care a lot about my own money and my own values. And I think every investor feels the same. So Obviously, the ESG thing, it's become a little bit of this, you know, political hot potato, wild card, whatever you want to call it. Are 
advisors staying away from that? Are, are, are they more, you know, using the language that you and I are using right now, talking about impact and values, I guess, because to me, that whole, the whole ESG thing, it's, it's more relevant to pensions mm -hmm. and that institutional world. How is this playing out like on an individual level with investors, retail investors and their advisors? I think ESG is a term that people just kind of have gotten used to using. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think when advisors are talking to their clients, they really are talking more about impact investing. And there have been plenty of studies. I believe State Street did a study a few years ago that showed this, that women and younger investors, like millennials, like the 40-ish and younger investors, are particularly interested in investing in a way that makes the world a better place uh, and makes them feel good, whether that be ego or impact. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's definitely more conversation there. If you think about a firm like Ethic, uh, which does, you know, kind of custom SMAs in that quote ESG space, like it is very much allowing the investor to define what ESG is to them um, when they create the portfolios. And they've had a lot of success in the advisor market. They've grown a ton because there is demand there. But then when you think about ESG mutual funds, which are not customized and very much to your point, like nobody cares what BlackRock thinks is important, mm -hmm. those haven't taken off the way people would have expected. And quite frankly, if you look at ESG funds versus their non-ESG counterparts, they're not substantially different. The SEC has cracked down a little bit on that UNPRI signing. Right. Like, um, you know, a lot of firms signed that, but it didn't actually change the way they were investing. It was sort of like a virtue signaling. So there's been some crackdown on on that and it's become less popular to advertise those things. But I, I do think that opportunity to connect on a personal level and to create investments and find investments that align with people either on a ego or impact basis is, is the key to success in introducing and actually getting more individuals and their advisors to consider this alternative world because it's it's vast and you can find pretty much anything you could possibly imagine in it so why not look for ways in which you can connect your clients with things that make them happy that they're going to be excited to invest in and and that also helps with overcoming some of the common objections about liquidity and lockups people aren't as concerned about that because they want to be investing in that. They would invest in it. Yeah, forever. I'm just saying I'm not going to sell my prize baseball card just because the market's down. Okay, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the point. You know, yeah. I, I love the sports rights fund um, that Kaz did recently because same thing. Like if you're telling your buddies at the golf club, right? that you invested and now you own an ownership interest in, you know, name your favorite sports teams. I'll say, you know, the Celtics, uh, that's one of my favorites. So um, I own a ownership interest. They don't need to know that it's a tiny little minority interest, but I own sure. a piece of the Celtics, right? I'm <laughs> bragging about that. The, the yeah. last thing I'm going to do is sell that when the market gets tough or something to that extent, because I'm very personally connected to it. And now I've talked all about it and I'm not going to tell my buddies I sold my ownership interest in the Celtics because, you know, the market was down. Like, then what was the point? It couldn't have been that valuable or that important. And and so, again, I think it overcomes a lot of the most common objections. But from the advisor perspective, think about it from that relationship standpoint, right? When you're talking to your clients about the things that really get them excited, 
uh, things that they're passionate about, things that align with their values, what their values are. Now you're creating a much deeper connection with your client. So from just the ability to maintain the relationship and keep the client and their assets is much stronger there. And the ability potentially to get more of their assets also grows because now you've taken a personal interest in them and you're getting to know them and you're finding ways to help them invest in ways that get them excited. Totally. Now, I mean, I don't want to say I'm surprised to be hearing this from you, Shana, that maybe that's not that's not exactly the right word. But, you know, you are a portfolio construction expert, or at least mm -hmm. I would consider you an expert. Right. And so the kind of that kind of mathematical, you know, diversification modeling standpoint, I would think could lead one to the conclusion of like, well, an alt allocation, if you, you know, look at all the, the back data and you back test it and yada, yada. It really should be 3% private credit and 7% private. Like there's probably, who knows, you could probably make some sort of mathematical answer and say it should be diversified ideally like this. But that's not what you're saying at all. You're at, you, you, you seem to be saying, at least what I'm hearing, is you, you want to be in alternatives, but it's okay within that allocation to be imbalanced, to be... Yeah following you know what you're interested in essentially absolutely and and i'll tell you why so in all the years i've been working with advisors and talking about alternatives i've, I've taken a lot of feedback and heard what they had to say <laughs> sure. you know that, was that fun to... was that fun and pleasant for you uh, yeah, i mean it was okay. never you know alts in general are pretty unpopular or have been pretty unpopular with advisors because inevitably anyone who's at any point tried them usually got burned for sure. inappropriate use. Yep. So I've always looked at it as, look, you should have alts in your portfolio. And I actually believe you should have the diversifying alts, which are the unsexy, like hedge fund-esque kind of stuff, like the equity market neutral, the global macro, managed futures, capital structure arbitrage, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. which is very complex. Um, but broadly speaking, it's more accessible today because we have interval funds, ETFs can do this kind of thing. Now we have mutual funds that are doing hedge fund like strategies. There's a broader array of accredited investor options in these types of products with yeah. low minimums. You know, I've seen minimums as low as 10,000, 50,000 in some of these funds. Those have real true diversification benefits. But when you start talking about some of the other stuff, there's a couple of things we need to remember. In the institutional space, you know, usually, especially if you're like an endowment, somebody is telling every year like Harvard's endowment smoked Yale's like, so there's a competitive aspect to that. So there's somewhat of a, I need to beat the next guy. Yeah. Um, and um, that doesn't really exist in the individual investment world. I, I can't stress this enough, but most advisors will tell you, and even I saw this when I worked on the institutional side, poor performance doesn't normally get you fired unless it's poor performance for a reason that has nothing to do with like stock selection. Like, you know, there's some operational breakdown. You're not following what you said you were going to do. You're investing outside of like your mandate. Things of that nature will get you fired, but just underperforming. If value's underperforming and you're a value manager, you're not going to get fired <laughs> because you are underperforming the S&P 500 if value in general is underperforming. It's just not going to happen. If you continue to do what you're supposed to do, you can go on your merry way. And with advisors, there's some of that. But also, advisors are helping their clients meet some sort of financial goal in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Pay for their kid's school, buy a house, 
buy a second house, retire early, whatever it is. And there's no brownie points. You don't get a trophy because you overshot the bogey, right? Now, your client will probably not be mad at you if you made them an extra 100000 but they're not going to fire you because you met the bogey. They're not going to fire you because so-and-so's advisor made him more money. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Did they meet the goal? Can they do buy the house, send their kid to school, retire comfortably? That's the only thing that matters, right? Yeah. So I think we get hung up on, oh, are we beating the market? No. Are we on track to reach our goal? You will 100% get fired if you don't help them meet their goal. So you're talking more about absolute return or just the binary, do we meet the goal or not? Right. Versus relative performance, something you and I may pay it to, like I may as member yeah, of I financial mean, media or you may in your your role, but the average investor is probably not even really on their radar. Right. Know? I mean, all they care about is can they do what they're setting out to do? Yeah. Um, you know, and and when you think of it from that point, our job as advisors and my job as a PM who works with advisors is to make sure that we do that. And better if we can do it with less vol. Yeah. Um, and you know, lower drawdowns. And guess what? Alts allow us to do that. And guess what? If we can do that in the common portfolio and then provide new and interesting ways to get your client excited about just investing in general, then we have a client for life. Um, we've helped them meet their goals. We've helped them invest in a way they're excited about. We've helped them sleep better at night because we haven't had big drawdowns because we thought about diversification. And some of these more esoteric alts are diversifiers. I mean, I guarantee you baseball card markets have no correlation to the S&P 500. Sneakers, that was huge during the pandemic, remember? You know, all these people who were collecting and selling sneakers during the pandemic, like... I guarantee you, and obviously uh, it did so well during the pandemic, that that has no correlation to traditional equity markets. Then you you start to think about the more traditional alternatives, which again are diversifiers, things like private equity and private credit. They have their place, right? They definitely have a place, but it's more of a, I'm going to put a little bit of this in my equity portfolio because I think I can get a slightly better return Mm -hmm. and it, it makes sense. Uh, but it's not really like a diversifier in that sense. Uh, it's just an opportunity to potentially make a little bit extra money. But no one's firing you because you didn't. They yeah, yeah. I, I, you if you did. Shana, well, well, I would say that I think with alternatives, one thing that trips me up sometimes is there's a difference between negative correlation, non-correlation, and then light correlation. I mean, I would say probably without looking into it too much, like some of the collectibles do probably have a light correlation to the S&P 500, just in the sense that, you know, multimillionaires or billionaires might be, you know, had a wonder great year and they're like, okay, I'll head over to Heritage Auctions or uh, Christie's or Sotheby's and, you know, go blow money on random collectible, random art. So, I mean, but that's not the same type of correlation that you're going to find between, you know, one equity mutual fund and another equity mutual fund or anything like that. And then you, you pointed out some of like the, like a merger arbitrage hedge fund or managed futures. Some of those might actually have negative correlation where they're zigging when the market zags. So just kind of my disclaimer that, you know, 
alternatives, you know, I like to talk about them as a portfolio diversifier, but it really does matter asset class by asset class. They mm -hmm. all, we lump them all into this term, but they all kind of behave very slightly differently. differently. And, and that's why I bring up the private equity, private credit thing, because private equity yeah. actually is highly correlated to public equity markets. Uh, and private credit yeah. is also highly correlated to private debt market or public debt markets. Um, and so they, they very much are related and there's high correlation there. Now, the reason you include them is because the potential for outsized returns is greater because they're less efficient markets where you can have an information edge and there's alpha and illiquidity and there's a number of reasons why. But to your point, alts is a broad universe. And mm -hmm. when I talk about alts and when I think about incorporating alternatives in the portfolio, I kind of put them in those different buckets. Like sure. that private equity, private credit is still equity and debt and you have like real assets and collectibles and the stuff we're talking about in that sense like those tend to have light correlation they can actually be all over the place it's really a supply demand thing uh yeah. and then you have like your diversifiers which is your market neutral and your global macro and things of that nature so like you can't think of alts as just one like oh i'm allocating 20 percent to alts and everything that falls into alts goes in there because that's not how it is but that's why i think it's so important to think of alts as an opportunity right so opportunity to diversify opportunity to potentially increase returns in traditional asset classes opportunity to have passionate and emotional connections with an investment and your client to build and grow those relationships why can't we leverage all of those things to our advantage and that's the beauty of the alternative universe totally and you know you mentioned this this bridge or let's call it the concept of the bridge you know the the kind of whets your appetite gets you into alternatives i have to say i want to ask you about yourself but i also want to say it's totally true in in my case as an investor jimmy my business partner and i you know we co-founded wealth channel but in our 20s and early 30s we had four different startups that we you know, we co-founded, we built up, we scaled, and then we exited. And then with those liquidity events, you know, we became an investors and learned about private equity and all this stuff. But looking at my track record now as an investor, I've always been attracted to angel investing, mm -hmm. venture capital, micro private equity. And that's because I'm an entrepreneur, right? And I've had that experience and I, by the way, I don't even know that I have this like wonderful track record as an angel investor. But you but... haven't been paying attention either because you're just investing to align with something you're passionate about. Exactly. That's the, That's the whole point. Exactly. So I want to ask you, though, you know, for you personally, if you're comfortable sharing, what, what are your passions? You know, so, you know, to give our audience some, some more examples, you know, I see real estate entrepreneurs all the time become LPs in real estate funds. Mm -hmm. and they're just passionate about real estate. Right. How about you, Shana? What what are you passionate about? So I'm really passionate about helping women succeed in, uh, in life and be able to maintain and support themselves financially. Not that I'm one of those people who's like, I don't need a man. Like <laughs> That is not the case at all. Like having a good partner and being happy sure. in life is important, but you should never count on somebody else for your own happiness or your own financial support. Yeah. So I'm very passionate about helping women understand markets and supporting female entrepreneurs and helping women succeed in whatever it is they're looking to achieve. So things like while I'm personally not invested in these things right now, because I have a startup and it's capital intensive, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for me to uh, maintain my startup as we're raising capital. Um, you know, microfinance and female entrepreneurs would appeal to me. And then I think about other things that I'm really passionate about. So things like educating kids in 
personal finance. You know, that is something I think of somebody like John Rogers at Ariel Investments. That's something he's really passionate about. So he actually funds a public school in Chicago and he funds their financial literacy program. And that brings him joy. I, I'm pretty sure he gets no return on investment. I'm pretty sure that's just but it brings him joy. That's mm -hmm. how he invests his money. He views that as an investment on the future generations. Um, so that's something. And then if you just want to get into my ego stuff, I love the sports rights stuff. I'm a huge sports fan and I'm <laughs> totally would, you know, jump at the chance to have some sort of even minority ownership interest in sports. I love horses. Uh, people invest in horses. You know, you hear it all the time when you watch the Kentucky Derby. So and so is an investor in this horse. Like they so when so when, when like Bonrian when Bonrian has this liquidity event, you know, you sell it to Fidelity. No, you it's a merger. You merge with Fidelity. A big liquidity event. I'm hearing you're you're going to be buying or investing in some racehorses. You might yep. maybe a, a sports sports rights fund, sports franchise fund. Maybe you just buy a franchise or or two. Depends on how good that liquidity <laughs> event is. And then female entrepreneurship. Uh, just and, all. And then I I if we we want to talk real estate. I don't think it's particularly good investment, but I, I I would love to own some real estate by the ocean. Maybe I buy some like homes on the beach and Airbnb them and make some extra money that way. Um, I could see myself doing that because um, you know retiring on the shore is high on my list of things to do. Uh, so yeah, I mean these are the things I'm passionate about, and yeah. these are the things that I will inevitably, should I have an amazing liquidity event in the future, uh, be doing with with any. Um, you know, cash, unexpected cash windfall that I may have. You know, the other day, I kind of laugh about this and I posted it on social because it, it was funny to me. So a while back when like Powerball was having that like $1 billion thing, I bought some Powerball tickets through the Illinois State um, Lottery. Um, they have an app. So every now and then I get an email from like Illinois State Lottery telling me like, hey, such and such a jackbox high. And every now and then I'm like, eh, whatever, I'll, pay, I'll buy a ticket two bucks. It's on my phone. So it's easy. So the other day, Powerball jackpot was like 250, a 250 million, like not a particularly big one. But I had apparently uh, Illinois State Lottery had given me like two bucks. So I was like, all right, I'll buy a ticket. Next day, I got an email saying, hey, you've won. And I immediately was like, oh, my God, I won the lottery. Oh, my God, I won $250 million. And in my head, I'm thinking about all of the things we just talked about. Like, oh, my yeah. God, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Turns out I, like, hit one number and got $2. But it, it got me all excited. It got me yeah. thinking. But, like, to the point is, like, we all have those kind of things. If you ask yeah. anybody... If you won the lottery, what would you do? They'll tell you. And then we can find ways that they can invest today in those kind of things. Because well, that's a, that's a good point, Shana, because a lot of these things probably now do scale even not only to to regular high net worth accredited investors, you know, like outside of family offices. A lot of this stuff has always been available to family offices mm -hmm. or definitely institutional investors. But then it's kind of scaled down to there to everyday high net worth accredited investors. But even to non-accredited investors, some of these things are now available. So yeah, and not point, only that, but that's what Bonrian's doing is when we're building our access platform, that's something we're paying special attention to is trying to bring on these more interesting, emotionally connecting kind of investments to our platform um, to help our advisors come with good stories to proactively talk to their clients about alternatives. Like that's part of our mission is to help advisors get comfortable with alts. And this is part of 
how we intend to do that. Um, so that's part of what we're doing. But even more, I, I recently read like earlier this week that there is a bill that's being considered by Congress that will allow for an accredited investor exam where anybody who wants to invest in the space can actually take an exam if they don't meet the you know, general criteria uh, of sophistication. They can take this exam and if they pass it, then they can be accredited as well and they can invest in these things. So there is potentially an opportunity in the future for people who aren't currently able to invest in the space to invest in this space. And so being ahead of it now and thinking about it this way now, I think is a real opportunity for advisors to really think about how they can grow and build their business and enhance their relationships with clients and down the road, I really think these types of things, to your point, are becoming more and more available. You know, interval funds are growing. And while the first iteration of interval funds wasn't my favorite, um, some of the new stuff that's coming out is allowing for more interesting ways for the average investor to be able to access some of these much more interesting and much more connecting types of emotional investment opportunities. Um, you know, you don't have to be an accredited investor to, you know, collect baseball cards. Uh, you can just do it more efficiently by yeah. doing a fund of somebody who's a professional, but like you or I can go into like any collectible store and do that. Um, so again, I, there's a real, well, and, and yeah, it, I got to clarify, you know, with a lot of these collectibles, you know, there's a whole, most of that, you know, collectible, market segment is not investable but then there's a slice of it that is right so like mm -hmm. with baseball cards if you go buy a pack of ten dollars ten dollars worth of baseball cards you're going to open probably a dollar worth of baseball cards right but yeah if you get a honus wagner or mickey man, man mickey mantle rookie right. card that's an investment class card right. so that you know but my question you know i know we're almost out of time but where can this go wrong or what what kind of guardrails need to be around this you know because i'm thinking well I, I can't go liquidate my portfolio or even have my portfolio and go buy baseball cards even if right. i'm sticking with investment no, grade cards you know that wouldn't be a wise decision so right. you know when you're speaking with advisors or or even from that perspective of portfolio construction where could this go wrong or what kind of guardrails should investors have in mind or advisors have in mind when they're talking about these more passion type investments? Well, two things to consider. Um, when you think about passion investors, you got to think about what a client's comfort with is an illiquidity. And then you also have to think about of the illiquid investments we're going to make, uh, how much of those are going to be in some of the more esoteric things. So say, you know, I would say on average, you know, the average individual might be okay with 10% being illiquid. So as an advisor, maybe it's prudent for me to do 5% of that two and a half in private equity, two and a half in private credit, or maybe, you know, all five in private credit, depending on the markets, and then take the uh, remaining five and, and do something more interesting with it, where it's kind of like, it's illiquid, I can't really access it. We may make money, we may not, but at least we're connecting with something that is making you feel good. Mm -hmm. And 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 that matters. And then the other thing is, you know, when we talk about alts, and I don't care where we're talking about alts or what kind of alternative we're talking about, these are largely unregulated pools of assets. And so the due diligence that is required to make sure that like the fund itself or whatever it is that you are investing with is a, you know, good 
operational entity and that, you know, the people are doing what they're saying they're doing. There's audited information. If we're talking about collectibles, I can go to a vault and see it. And there's somebody like monitoring that what they say they own, they actually own and it's uh, taken care of. Um, Like those are the things you have to become very cognizant of. That's what we at Bonran kind of take the lead on for the advisor. If we bring something on our platform that falls into this kind of category, you can feel really confident that we didn't bring it on here just because it's a good sales gimmick, I see. Because but you, more you, that we also did all the work to make sure that it's also a you know entity that isn't going to end up in the headlines and that they're doing what they're actually saying they're doing. And that can yeah. be true with anything. Like think about gold funds, you know, anything that's backed by some sort of real asset, you have to have some somebody who's making sure that that asset exists where it's held and who's, you know, m- managing and monitoring the care and security of that asset. Right. Um, you need to make sure that like the TPA is real and the pricing is like you operationally and compliance wise have to be much more dialed in with some of these more esoteric types of things. But I think that's true with alternatives in general. Right. It, it totally is. And I mean, to your point, you know, alternatives, they, I think they're a pain in the rear end for a lot of advisors because within that there's so many different asset classes mm-hmm. and it's like, am I really going to have time to do due diligence on each asset class and then each fund? And that's where a firm like Bonrian comes in. Yeah, you, you want to avoid your manager yeah. and you know watching an episode of American Greed on CNBC and seeing the guy that you just invested in. Um, and more yeah. more often than not, if you watch that show, it is stuff like this that ends up being part of that American Greed. It, it, it's these sure. more esoteric things because of all the things we just talked about. But that's why it becomes that much more important to work with a firm like Bonrian who is doing that work for you. And you can feel confident that we've made sure that this is operationally a real entity and that you know we've checked all the boxes from that respect. So then you can go and confidently talk about it. But I think the bigger story here is that it actually makes the conversation easier and And that is more of the reason advisors and retail clients have stayed out of alt is the difficult conversation more than the potential risk of those headline blowups. You know, more times than not, those are rare occasions where you have swindlers and like anybody who had half a brain could kind of see it. Um, But if you just have some general rules operationally, even the people that you meet, that you love, that you would love to invest in, you know, you can say, I'm sorry. I have this one really hard and fast rule and you don't meet it. Um, and those are things that you can kind of hold true. And, and having professionals who do that work is really important. Um, so I can't understate that. That is that is what could go wrong for sure in this space. I love it. So, you know, healthy mix of optimism and passion with uh, guardrails and due diligence and, you know, letting professionals do their job and help you. Shana, this has been a really insightful conversation. I just, I, I love your passion. I, I love my passions. I love the idea that I could actually allocate a portion of my portfolio to baseball cards. So maybe, maybe we should follow up on that separately, <laughs> but in the meantime, where can our audience of family offices, advisors, high net worth investors go to learn more about Bonrian capital management and all of your services? 
Uh, well, we have uh, obviously our website, bonroomcapital.com. And then we have a YouTube channel uh, that you can find um, information about our team, our services, see some of our media clips and our podcasts and our web series. You're doing it all wrong. Our podcast, The Alternatives Mason, uh, which is about educating brick by brick on alternative products. So, you know, we have a broad array of different ways you can interact with us, but our website's the best place to start and our YouTube channel's probably second. And then if you just want to follow along with what we're doing, LinkedIn and Twitter is where you can find us. Dana, I appreciate all the work you do on behalf of the alternatives industry. I think you're a great spokeswoman for the industry, educating people on all those platforms. So thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks again for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.